Most investments carry risk, but there's one that is all upside. The only risk-free investment is an investment in yourself. The Globe and Mail is the largest business newsroom in Canada, interpreting and unpacking macroeconomics, housing, policy decisions, and world events. Enjoy a comprehensive suite of business newsletters, breaking news, and market updates straight to your inbox. As a subscriber to the Globe and Mail, you'll get access to investor tools like advanced charting, portfolio with the Wellscope report card, providing independent six-factor review of your portfolio, and stock screener to help you find the right investments. The Globe and Mail is offering a special digital subscription rate just for Looney Hour listeners. For a limited time, get access for $75 a year for your first year. For more details, visit globeandmail.com slash podcast. Before we get started, I just want to remind everyone that this information discussed today is not intended to be or construed as investment advice. Please consult a professional advisor before putting a loony in any of these financial markets. The dirty secret is that no one's ever going to get paid back or have the shortest memories when it comes to investment. We just got to get Keith into Bitcoin. Hey, there's a bubble. Welcome back to Looney Hour, episode 78. As always, joined by the three amigos, we've got Keith Dicker of Icecap Asset Management and Rich Diaz of Acorn Macro Consulting. Rich, what's going on, buddy? New background? New background, new scenario, new setting, new year. No, it's not the new year, uh, unless you're a Zoroastrian. But anyways, no, I'm, I'm at the WeWork today and because uh, I can't work from home, basically, is the story. I just <laughs> basically take naps between 10 and 10.30 and 3 and 3.30 and then... But I did find myself a room with canoes. So there are my Canadian credentials. Canoes in the background. There that you go. That kind of looks like Alberta in the background. It does actually. I actually think it is Alberta. It's got to be Alberta. God's country. Or something. God's country. That's right. I think it might be BC. Whatever. But anyways, yeah, I'm here. I'm happy. Um, I, so I, I, I always thought, what happened to WeWork, man? I thought there was like this that big scandal. I'm surprised there's still a thing. Um, so I'll tell you, as someone who's looked both looked at the stock um and been a faithful user of the service. The service is amazing uh, for the people. I mean, it's just, it's clean. It's nice. Uh, there's free beer uh, at five o'clock. My mom free told beer. me to not talk about, my mom told me to t- not stop talking about being drunk all the time. So I can't do that. But uh, there's free beer, there's free coffee. Um, there's all kinds of really woke signs everywhere telling us about things that we don't need to talk about. But uh, it's actually amazing. Now, from a business standpoint, from the actual equity holders of that business, I think it's going to go probably go bankrupt soon enough. Uh, the stock has absolutely plummeted. That Adam Newman did an absolute number on it. Who knows? I'm not a stock picker, but that there you go. That's my two cents. Get your free beer while you can. Exactly. Keith? I don't know, man. Like I, I just love so much love for Rich. And right now, while I'm, I'm hearing you. You're, you're in the UK. You're in London. I don't think that's the Thames behind you. It doesn't quite <laughs> look like it. But maybe you could be in a Ted Lasso episode. I think you could squeeze in there somehow. All right. That's all yeah. right. I don't mind. I yeah. love football. I, think, I know. You, you do really well with it. Uh, but for me, guys, I'll tell you something about you guys don't know something about me. Uh, well, you're actually, wearing a turtleneck? You're wearing a turtleneck? <laughs> yeah, looking <laughs> you like a, a lot of things right now. I'm going to show everyone what are, the, what are the loves of my life. And every now and then, Mrs. Icecap will find at my desk. She'll say, you got it again. Are you ready? Here it comes. So oh, those man. listening, it's the President's Choice uh, Decadent Chocolate Chunk Cookies. Is that man, one? I, is that from the Loblaws guy that the Westons? Yeah. People are, would be. people are really yeah. upset. That guy just got a 55% pay raise. 
Well, I, oh, I would want to pay raise too if I was presiding over one of the oligopolies in Canada. <laughs> yeah, I think he his salary a nice is cookie, raise. It's a real nice cookie. Anyway, that, that's me. That's what I got going. Oh, and I watched a really great movie this week to give you another idea of my my keen sense of well, go on insight. Murder Mystery 2, not the oh, original. The first one's good. I love that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I never heard of it. That's funny humor. Speaking of funny humor, Steve, what's happening in the uh, real estate world in Vancouver these days? Ah, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's oh. just uh, people are people are getting excited again. The uh, the realtors are getting getting bullish. Uh, the drinks are flowing, so it's I don't know. It's interesting. It's bizarre. I think uh, I'm I'm still quite nervous. Still a little bit skeptical of this uh, current rally let's call it but um you know you dig into the data i think we touched on it briefly last week but uh yeah vancouver home sales kind of bouncing around below 10-year averages sort of you know still pretty weak but new listings at 23 year 22 year lows uh total standing inventory the lowest we've seen in almost 20 years and uh, it's a similar conversation in the GTA. I just had a good conversation with uh, John Pasalis, who I do a, a lot of work with. Uh, he's he's sort of the boots on the ground in Toronto. Um, and uh, yeah, he remarked that uh, GTA home sales were the lowest since 09, but inventory, I think, was uh, new listings coming on was, I think, around 20-year lows as well. And right now in the GTA, there's um, just over one month of supply on the market, which is crazy. Thanks. Like. Vancouver, Vancouver is a tight market and we have three months of inventory. That's and that's pretty tight. And we're seeing multiple offers and whatnot, but the GTA is at one month. So and um, the, I have a question for you, Steve, in the new inventory, I assume it's new builds mostly. And I, I know you also, you know, you're also gonna have transitional cost or inventory coming on, like people that are just leaving and stuff like that. Uh, so it really is, like you say, like, you know, the population growth is increasing and, where people want to buy something, but the new build inventory is not growing fast enough. Is that the best way to think I mean, about there's, it? Yeah, there's lots of units under construction. Um, so I do think that will help alleviate some issues probably over the next two years. Um, but yeah, I mean, as long as, you know, Rich has talked about it a lot. I mean, as long as the population continues to grow at a similar rate, I think you can make an argument that you're not going to be oversupplied uh, in any time in the near future. Now, speaking of potential supply, uh, I think there was a really large change announced from the BC government. Uh, David Eby, who I've chatted with numerous times, you know, interviewed him a couple of years ago, um, but he's he's really leaving his stamp, I think, on on the housing market. So we talked about it, Rich, you and I have talked about it. I think Andrew Haynes was talking about it on Twitter quite a bit too, um, which was New Zealand's housing policy. So they came in, they basically banned, I think it was in the main city there, is they basically banned single family zoning. And so they allowed multi-units to be allowed to be built on all single family zoning. And so the BC government said, okay, let's go and follow that. So they just announced that, this fall, they're creating legislation that was going to override municipal zoning, and they're essentially going to eliminate single-family zoning. They're going to allow uh, duplexes, triplexes, and I think fourplexes 
on on all essentially all single family zoning depending on the size of the lot so we're gonna we have to wait to get all the details but i i think it's a monster uh, announcement that is a huge announcement um or as i want to have i have a question for our resident nimby (laughs) that's you keith (laughs) um but I, i was just wondering like just is it i mean simply put is that a good idea is it a good idea is it about time or is it a too late or how do you feel about it steve uh, I think in the near term, the very short term, it's a definitely a land lift for people that own the land. So if you bought a single family house, you know, 13 years ago, like congratulations. Um, I think, but I think over the long run, as the supply actually gets built, you know, I think you're going to see the benefits four to five years from now. Um, cause I do think, you know, I mean, Calgary already has this model where basically single family zoning, they, and it, Calgary has tons of land. So they let people basically just take single families and build these infill units, which is like duplexes, fourplexes, uh, row homes on inner lots. So the fact that like land constrained areas like Vancouver haven't allowed it is, is quite bizarre. Okay. Um, and I think that really just goes to, I think the, the layers of bureaucracy. Um, well, that. That brings me to my next question, which is, is, is Vancouver really that land constrained? Forgive my ignorance, but like I, I live in a, I live in a, in a, in a part of the world that actually is land constrained. I think the UK is one of, if not the most populated per square foot um, place in the world, which begs the question why I live here at all. But anyways, um, but the um, it, it's, it's just extremely um What's it called? There's loads and loads of people in a very, very small amount of area. Is it really true that you cannot expand? Is, like in the, in London, there's something called the Green Belt, which a bunch of NIMBYs, Keith should be familiar with these people. They don't want to let let, um, let you build outside this like magical Green Belt. Um, it's totally artificial. There's, so the there's GTA no, has as well. Yeah. So, but in, 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 in Vancouver, is that the same thing? No, I mean, we're basically like you got mountains, water on one side, you know, river on the other side. And then you've got a lot of it is... Uh, ALR agricultural uh, land reserve. So, um, yeah, I, I honestly think we are land constrained. Now, I will say okay. a lot of the land, a lot of the land in this, in the actually the majority of the land in the city of Vancouver is actually zoned for single family. That's dumb. Which is dumb <laughs> because when you think about it, one piece of land. If I just say, hey, you know, I'll sell you a teardown house anywhere in the city of Vancouver, those prices start at about one point seven million. So it's like, it's really not feasible or attainable for the vast majority of people entering the market. Um, And so the fact that the majority of your land is zoned to only allow those price points is, 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 it doesn't make sense anymore. So I I think ultimately, yes, they need to essentially open up the floodgates and, uh, and start building these sort of, you know, three units, four units and, and get the density. And, and hopefully that will, I think, I think over time it will mitigate. Cause you do have this missing middle, right? Young families, basically, uh, they only, they either go into a two bedroom condo or they go into a detached house and they have to make that lead. There's not really a whole lot of product mix in between. And, uh, ultimately I think this is certainly, a. I mean, it's a bigger, bigger conversation, but I think this is a huge reason why you're seeing young families or young people not really having kids, at least in, you know, places like Vancouver and Toronto, it's too expensive. And if all you can afford is a two bedroom condo, do you really want to have two kids in a two bedroom condo? 
That that and climate nihilism, but that's a conversation for a different day. My question is for Keith, who is the resident NIMBY. How would you feel if someone bought built a duplex right next to your mansion? Yeah, I mean, at my point in my life, I wouldn't like it because the neighborhood I'm in, it's all single family homes. Like there's no, and if you if you know Halifax or not, um, within the city, there are very specific neighborhoods where it's just all student rentals and then there's areas where, the, where there isn't and there's a huge difference in lifestyle um because you know students are they're, they're students like halifax and dalhousie university is famous for their uh, i don't know what party their open street party they have every year in september and like it, it's a complete gong show like you're getting thousands of kids on the street and stuff and so what happens about five blocks away from where i live and I don't see not one student over here during that night. Like it, it just doesn't happen. But anyway, let but this, it's just let this man things. suck back his Pinot Noir in peace. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, actually, I found a new drink when I was on holiday. A nice vermouth. It was really nice to. Uh, Sorry, to what? A, a what? Blah <laughs> blah blah. Uh, but back to the solution here is what you just explained, Steve. That seems to be an option, doesn't it? Like, is there any, because you have to make new supply. And if you constrict it with land, like you can't build out. Yeah. So you have to go up. Basically, like yeah. What, and people pay. What else can they do? Well, yeah. I mean, essentially, most of the development that we've been building over the last 10 years has really, realistically, it's predominantly been catered towards investors. And so you're building like these, you know, high rise towers and you're building small one bedrooms, junior two bedroom units, because those are what maximize, you know, in cash flow for investors, which is great, but it, it doesn't doesn't really help the young family that needs, you know, a three bedroom and thirteen hundred square feet, uh, you know, to raise a family. So th this is the product mix I think that is sorely needed in in a lot of Canada, to to be frank. So uh, yeah, we'll 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 get a sense of that, but um, I think that's about it. On the uh, speaking of uh, NIMBYs, uh, you, go ahead. I have one more thing to add. Uh, now this must be true because I saw it on Twitter, of course, right? So it, it's 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 true. Uh, but I saw a conversation about uh, population growth in Canada with how many immigrants are coming in last year versus this year, and I thought I saw someone suggested that it will be even more coming in in twenty three. And the number I saw was one and a half million, which I thought was pretty dramatic. But have you guys seen or read or heard of anything along those numbers? I haven't heard. That. I don't know what kind of counts you're following. <laughs> Pinot Noir or at Pinot Noir <laughs> or stuff like that. Uh, but if any listener, if they have, you know, hard data on that, like what's been approved for this year, uh, maybe just share it with us because it, you know, it, well, it is the... Yeah, it, it it does provide a lot of underlying support for both housing as well as the economy and and stuff like that. So it is something important for us to keep. To your an eye point: on. the Canada the Canadian government's raised their their permanent residency targets, I think, to four hundred eighty thousand this year, five hundred thousand next year. But they don't actually set targets for foreign students and foreign workers. So it's kind of like you kind of just open up the floodgates and figure out how many people come in. So that's kind of the problem. So so if Rich came back, what would what would you be, Rich? What would you be called? Um, an illegal alien. Uh, no, I have no idea. I think I would just be uh, an emigrate. What is it? E-M-M -M instead of I-M-M? -M? I don't I don't know. I have no idea what I'd be. No, a welcome addition. You're I'd leaving. Be that means you're leaving. You're going to come back. You want to. Okay. Next. <laughs> let's well. just go to the next 
topic that may not we got, be interesting well, as well. Yeah, enough of this. We got the Bank of Canada uh, next week. So I don't know if you have any views. Uh, rate hike, rate cut, rate pause. I'll go first. I'll go first. <laughs> <laughs> Drum roll. No move. No, no, no rate move next week. Won't be anything happening. Rich. Same. Sorry to be boring, everybody, but it's the yeah, same. same. Okay, moving on. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but no, in, in all honesty, um, it, it, yeah, I think it's pretty widely but telegraphed. I, but I think it leads into why we all feel so oh, strongly right. there, there won't yeah. be a move. I think that's a good way to, to ease into that. Yeah, Keith, open it up. Your idea. <laughs> this, now I'll pass it over to Rich. Uh, but, you know, the reason they... <laughs> But the reason they they paused on their rate hikes was because it was their anticipation that inflation was going to start to roll over, the economy would start to weaken and soften. And now we're starting to actually see that happen. But not only in Canada, but uh, this week, uh, the RBA, so it's with the Aussies, their central bank went on hold. Uh, it seems like everyone has gone in that direction except for the Fed. Oh, and the Bank of New Zealand, which was did a very odd, surprising fifty basis point move. I don't know what that was all about, but yes, that's the Kiwis. That's uh, <laughs> I don't follow them that. <laughs> I don't follow them that that closely. Um, but you know, again, we, we continue to go down this path where, where data is getting weaker and, and weaker, and it, it is it does allow them the opportunity to you know to stay on pause. And again, they won't be hiking anytime soon unless there's a reason. Uh, to protect the currency at some point, but I know I know Rich has some pretty cool data there. If you're into cool data, as well, we to... had the Canadian jobs numbers. You didn't want to go over those. Uh, they only surpass uh, economists' expectations this time by about four and a half times. So uh, <laughs> the old ten bagger is out the window, and uh, Canadian jobs surprised again to the upside. I think it was what thirty five thousand. The estimate was seventy five hundred, something like that. So. Yeah, um, economists are still way off. Well, I mean, we know it's a random number generator. Um, I think the actual was 34.7. The surprise was 22,000, I think, prior. And there was no revisions. I think that's it. One thing I think is interesting is that the unemployment rate continued to fall. So now we're at 5%. And the participation rate basically flat. So there you go. That's all the data. But one thing I think it's important. Sorry, if we can just go back one half step, if you don't mind, as far as the rate hike stuff, I think what's important to remember just to contextualize, some people may have not have heard us talk about this before, but it's just, I think it's, it's a function of two or three things. One is how much debt these different uh, central banks have. So it's not just the RBA that's paused or Bank of Canada, but the Bank of Korea's paused the RBNZ. I think, although they were surprised, I think they're going to pause as well and a couple others, but it's something that we discussed, I mean, long, long time ago. It's the fact that like all of their mortgage markets are tied to the front end of the curve. So short-term interest rates, you know, one, two, three, four, five years or whatever, rather than in the US, which is a 30-year mortgage product. And all of those countries have huge, huge household debt levels. So in order of the top five or six, it's Switzerland with the most, Australia, South Korea, Canada, Netherlands, and New Zealand. So those are the top five global household debt to GDPs. So it's, I don't think it's that all an accident that those central banks have paused because of like those, like I said, lots of debt, lots of debt tied to the front end of the curve. But I also think that the upshot, I think, is people are starting to congratulate themselves on this inflation call. And I'm just, I would just pause on that. We've talked about the shelter component. Let's ignore that so Steve doesn't kill me. But I think it's just in general, the services bit 
I think just across the board, whether you look at the um, UK, US, um, virtually every major developed economy in the West and in, in Asia, you're going to see, I mean, minus China, who knows what's going on there, but the services component just hasn't fallen. That's the lion's share of people's spending. Um, and I was just, I think what they're just going to do is say, you know, screw it. We're just going to deal with higher inflation for longer because we can't suppress demand because of all the housing knock-on effects. I know it's a bit circular, but I think it's really important to contextualize that. Um, so that that's the only, that's the bit I want to add as far as the, the employment stuff. I have nothing to I have nothing to add on that. Sorry, Steve. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I think we've chatted quite a bit about, uh, you know, double st stickier inflation. I mean, you could get it back down to maybe it comes back into the threes. Maybe, but the, what's, what we're also seeing is now a lot of the components that were cratering, uh, a couple of months ago, or maybe whatever, which was like all the commodity stuff, the supply side driven stuff. There was all this talk about used car prices. You'll notice Twitter's gone quiet on that. All of those have bottomed and are actually, you could make a really cogent argument that we're going to start seeing a rebound in the contribution. So those contributions went from normally, historically, they're quite flat. They spiked up during COVID. They've come down back to zero where they sort of not zero, but you know, close to zero where they belong. And now we're starting to see sort of a, a I think we're going to just start to see the, the little green shoots, Keith. <laughs> of green shoots. Sort of that, yeah, green shoots uh, of like, for example, used car prices and that kind of thing. The only thing I think that will stop that is if we get this, you know, much anticipated recession, which we're, I guess we're going to have to talk about because the ISM in the US came out and all that stuff. But I don't well, you're talking about you. services. I, I kind of have a question for you because it's, uh, yeah, yeah uh, you know, we had... The ISM manufacturing and the ISM services, of course, the services, I think, was expected to come in around uh, 54 on your your old uh, diffusion index uh, and, yes. and a surprise to the downside around 51. So it was a pretty, pretty large miss there. I mean, obviously, not quite in contractionary territory yet, but uh, like, how do you kind of square that? I think it's weird, right? Because you've seen a loads of volatility in that index over the last little while. I mean, it's more volatile generally than the manufacturing index. Um, just roughly speaking, services about 75% of the US economy, probably similar things are different. Um, but I think, yeah, it's, I think it's a, it's definitely, um, it's definitely probably freaked some people out. Um, in general, you still had a bunch of the sectors still growing. So the way the diffusion index, my favorite word, is sort of an amalgam of different um, inputs. So you got new orders, employment, supplier deliveries, inventories, prices. If it sounds like I'm reading it, it's because I am. Um, and you diff obviously some of them are contracting. So imports, backlogs of orders are, in, uh, are contracting. That's actually probably a good thing for the economy. And then other things that are still growing, which is new orders, employment is still growing. So tomorrow... We record this on a Thursday. Sorry, I'm stealing your line, Keith. But tomorrow is the non-farm payrolls. Very, very important number for the US. Um, that'll be really interesting to see. In general, business activity is still above 50, 55. So it's still growing. It's just slower. The ISM manufacturing was unambiguously bad. Um, that was now 46 point something. And that across the board is just is really bad. But the weird thing is if you look at the comments, and I always tell people to read the comments section, not on YouTube, but in the ISM report. And you can see a lot of the, still a bunch of the industries are still doing doing okay. Uh, so food and beverages, for example, um, you know, consumer and electronic products, they're doing all right. Um, and I think it, it's because of the, like it's because of the, the diffusion index. So there's some components that have absolutely cratered, which is like supply chain lead times, 
um, and inventories, um, whereas others are still okay. You know, I mean, um, you know, don't get me wrong. It was an unambiguously a bad number. All of nearly all of the seven out of the 10 components are contracting and at a faster rate. So that's for sure. Um, bad, but it's just, yeah, I think it's, um, it's just like we, what Keith said for a long time, we're just getting weaker and weaker data. And that's not even to mention the other countries that also had PMIs released. Keith, what's on your mind? So what's interesting with all this now is we were now markets are starting to shift from where signs of a slowdown were perceived to be bullish because it meant central banks would stop hiking rates. And, and I'm starting to see evidence here now where it's suddenly it's starting to shift to, oh, wow, a recession isn't good. So, you know, some, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I think, yeah, bad news is bad news. <laughs> yeah. So we're, we're starting to shift from, you know, one, one market to the next and, you know, and the way it should work out if, if everything was in line. And of course it never does go perfectly like that. But as soon as we move towards this market where it is a recession, it's bad for earnings, some equity sectors should do worse than other sectors. For example, uh, cyclical. So you're looking at consumer discretionary uh, materials, industrials, you know, stuff like that should not do as well. But at the same time, though, uh, the long government bond markets should start to really outperform. So, you know, we, so all of a sudden you see the American say the 10 year right now, we're at around three and a quarter, maybe we're at four and a half there, not too, not too long ago. And back then everyone was saying, oh, it's going to go to six. No, it's going to eight. You know, they're tripping over themselves. You know, maybe we reach a two handle on it and that will just blow everyone up. And they, they wouldn't be expecting that. Um, and then credit, like corporate credit, you know, it should really start to blow out. And uh, so what, what's interesting, uh, so this morning, the Bank of Canada uh, came out with their business outlook survey. And uh, if you're, uh, you know, you're, you're like us, you're, you're kind of nerdy, you like this kind of stuff. There, there's some interesting things, you know, they're, they're, in, they're, you know, sending out a questionnaire survey to, to businesses to try to, to try to gauge, you know, what they're seeing. And, and all the data this time, it's, you know, it, it's all getting softer and softer. But one of the charts that caught my attention uh, is actually chart number two. And uh, the title of it says cost pressures remain the top concern, which, which is true because it affects companies' margins. But one of the items on it, which continues to deteriorate, is credit. So it, it's really, it's measuring what is the firm's view on, you know, be able to, to you know, to borrow. And uh, that continues to it gets worse. So companies are seeing that as it's harder to borrow. Uh, they're anticipating if they are borrowing, it's going to be at less favorable terms than what they had before. And, and again, like if you're connecting all the dots, there shouldn't be any shocks or surprises with it because it reconciles with the ISM data that, that we just went through. Uh, it reconciles, you know, what we're seeing with markets are starting to transition. So right, right now there are no surprises in the system. You know, we're moving along as we should. And we, you know, we always talk about this path and journey and Aerosmith and everything, you know, we have fun oh. with, but it's, it's going in, in that direction. So, um, can I ask you know, a question, it, Keith? It, it makes us happy. Sorry. Can I ask you a quick question? Is it because the, uh, the, the, are the credit conditionings worsening because of the cost or because the supply? Do you know what I mean? 
Because I know in the senior loan officer survey, which is a similar thing, they do this for the US, they do it for Canada, you can have like the cost of borrowing, but also sometimes even if you're willing to pay 9% or whatever it is, the banks say, no, sorry, the, you know, the window's shut. So what did they split it out? No, no, it's just- Okay, too bad. Yeah, so we can, okay. you know, th this is where as an investment professional, you can interpret it to, to match your story, whatever narrative you want to tell. So okay. uh, I, I don't know it at this point. What well, because the reason I the reason I bring that up is because one of my clients is a real estate investment trust thing. So they basically I don't know, not really a REIT, but you know what I mean. They invest in hard assets, whatever. And they said, Oh, yeah, sure, you can definitely borrow as much as you want if you pay nine percent or something outrageous, like outrageous, outrageous spread, basically. So so the credit is is tight, but e uh, expensive, but easy, if that makes sense. Anyway, sorry, Steve, I, I interrupted you. Well, I was going to say, I mean, you would imagine you get some credit tightening, uh, given what's happening in a lot with a lot of these, you know, regional banks in the US. Um, you know, it's interesting. I, I don't know what your guys' thoughts are, but it seems the narrative, uh, I think, in the mainstream is that crisis has been contained. They, they ring fence this thing, and we're all good. There's going to be a little bit of damage, but no more banks. That would be my call. Sorry to be a okay. <laughs> boring, but that's what the what discount was, windows for. We talked about it last week. Sorry, Keith. I think what was interesting uh, this week, you know, you, you said this was a Bloomberg story. Okay. So it wasn't like a loony hour story, right? It's <laughs> so less a, reliable. <laughs> yeah. Equally as unreliable news source, maybe. Um, but you guys see the Bloomberg story about the most, uh, about the banks. The bank stock that has the most short interest in the whole world. Did you see it? Is it short interest or number of, uh, yeah, tell us about it. Sorry. It was short interest. So basically it okay. measures, uh, it takes the company, what percentage of the shares have been borrowed to short. So what percentage of investors are making a bet that the price will go down you know, of, of the shares. Uh, so let's go through this. So candidates are uh, HSBC, Deutsche Bank, SockGen. Unicredit. Hey, you notice they're all over in Europe. <laughs> no, HSBC. Oh, HSBC is a, is listed in on the A shares market. Excuse me. <laughs> oh, it all looks the same. It all looks the same. Uh, or the number one was dun, 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 it was the Green Shirt Bank, TD Bank in, in Canada. So, you know, of, of course, that attracted a lot of attention in the uh, the Twitter Canada world. So is, is TD Bank crashing? Do you need to get your money out? Is that what that means? No, no. What, what does it mean, don't, Rich? Yeah, don't do, you, do that. Uh, no, don't, don't go there. Um, but a couple of things with it. It is, it's an interesting note. There's always short interest on every single stock in the world. Um, you know, the narrative behind it is because TD, uh, you know, they have a lot of exposure in the US. They also have exposure to Charles Schwab and, and they're they're struggling a bit these days because their own investment portfolio uh is, is taking on some losses. So um TD just had to happening. close a new acquisition as well, right? Yeah, the, the, but they'll renegotiate the price on it and, and stuff. Um so you have that, and it sort of fits into the narrative thing that we've been talking about quite a bit. But again, like you know, there's don't go running, take your money out of this bank or anyone right now. That that's not the case. The other thing that's interesting. So uh, back in a former life, when we were doing a lot, a lot of stock picking, we had we were running a global equity portfolio, and uh, one of the factors that we use as an input to our decision was short interest ratio. And, and one thing that would catch your attention is actually a firm with the highest short interest. So it's a bit of a contrarian 
indicator. So the, the point is that everyone is already short of it. There's no one else left too short. And then you can get this real powerful short covering rally and that could happen as well. But it, it, I just thought it was interesting. It did make me smile a, a little bit when I saw this big Canadian bank, you know, on, ahead of all these crap European banks in terms of a metric. You know, um, you know, it's interesting. Yeah, it was is funny. Like, I thought it was uh, funny. Interestingly enough is uh, TD has actually been the most aggressive on uh, new mortgage originations in Canada in the last month or two. So, I mean, I don't know if, if any of that's correlated, but um, they've been beating everybody on, on mortgage rate by 15, 20, 25 basis points. Like, so it's, it's, uh, We've got some mortgage brokers I know that listen to this show, and I can tell you they, they've been losing a lot of business, uh, frustratingly, to TD Bank. So, um, so, so know, that I could think, be a situation oh. where they just expect the turn to happen or the pause is going to stabilize. I mean, that's obviously they have a reason for doing it. I mean, they, they yeah. want to get market share somehow. Because um, most banks have really like pulled back, right? We've talked about this. There's uh, some of the big banks are just not; they're not even interested in competing on rate. Um, and then you got TD that, which is, like I said, kind of undercutting everyone. So it's kind of interesting just to sort of see how everyone's adjusting their, their risk, uh, risk, risk profile. I think we've talked about it before on the show, but, uh, you know, Scotia bank, for example, was one of the most, I, I would say, in my opinion, anyways, uh, was more, one of the more aggressive lenders during the most recent housing boom. And they've completely pulled back. Their mortgage pricing is 30, 40, 50 basis points higher than, than any other bank. And so, with, I want to, oh, go ahead. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, yeah. So one one thing that's interesting with that, you know, and again, I have no inside knowledge. I have no idea what what these guys have, and unless you're inside, you wouldn't either. Um, so with, and again, we're not picking names for specifically, but I think you said TD, right? They're they're underwriting more than everyone TD else. TD right they're, now is 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 the most aggressive, uh, at least in terms of on the rate side, and then uh, I would say the least aggressive, and basically. I mean, nobody's originating loans seemingly as is Scotia Bank. Yeah, so maybe each maybe they have different loss experiences on their books. So maybe TD say, hey, right, you know, we've held up really well on this downturn already. We don't think it's going to get any worse. Let's let's load up. Let's get more aggressive. Uh, Scotia Bank maybe maybe they're saying, man, we've already taken some heat here. We we can't afford any more. Um, you know, our economics team, they, they've been pretty aggressive, which, which way the world might move and to the negative side that they've been. So maybe they are the ones who are clamping down a little bit. So maybe that's what's happening in, in that situation. Um, the only thing I wanted to add was, I think we often think of Canadian banks as Canadian. And I think, um, unlike, um, Canada, America likes competition in their banking sector, um, and so a lot of the Canadian banks have moved into the United States market either, you know, by hook or by crook, either organically or by purchasing um, companies and sort of integrating those businesses and they just slap on the sticker or whatever it is, you know, whatever com company. So it's important to remember that TD, for example, has an enormous wealth management business and a lot of that wealth management business is in the U.S., uh, I'm just looking at this. So, you know, on Bloomberg or DataStream or whatever it is, you can look at the segments and then you can see the geographical segments. And if you do, you know, if you look at the geographical segment, you can see that, or sorry, the item, my setting segment, you can see a lot of that. So 15% is just from, um, I'm looking at it now. Sorry, I lost it. 15% um, is just from US corporate um, uh, business. 
uh, sorry, the uh, US personal and commercial banking is 15%. That doesn't include sort of the huge wealth management business. So I think the total is much, much closer to like 35 or 40% that comes from the US. So, and I think that they're the highest of all of the big five banks in Canada. So I would say maybe the short interest has something to do with, you know, in Canada, TD is a major bank, but in the US, TD is probably closer to a regional bank, um, certainly in terms of asset size. So I wonder if it hasn't, maybe it's to do with some, an offshoot of that. But again, we're not stock pickers. We don't know, but um, I think it's important to remember that. Fun to speculate. It is fun to speculate. <laughs> I think we should shift gears. We've had some commentary. Um you know, we've had a bunch of email questions coming in and there's, yeah, it's, you know, it's, you know, it's kind of like peak sentiment when the email questions are coming in from our <laughs> fans and then it's on Fox news, which is like the death of the U S dollar. Uh, Keith, uh, sure yes. Keith, I know you're going to have some strong opinions on this, but we have had some questions about, can you, can you comment on this? Is this truly the death of the U S you know, people are worried about the Canadian dollar. I mean, gosh, apparently the U.S. dollar is going to lose its uh, reserve status. Um, I'm curious if you want to just quickly chime in on that. I've got my thoughts, but I'll let you guys fire away. Well, I mean, it, it's I think it's incredibly interesting. It, it is the biggest story that will eventually develop in the financial world. Uh, but for everyone who's you know hopping on this story right now, um, it, it's the last currency to break. It is not first. That's not the way the world is, is going to work. We can go through the mechanics of it here in, in a little bit. But these stories out there, for example, I, I think the French did a, a nat gas trade with the Chinese. That doesn't make sense. Who do they do with Russia in Juan? I forget. No, I, I forget. No, it wasn't who did France. It was, it was Saudi and China, no? Anyways. Uh, no, the French were involved with it. The okay. French were always involved. Look at Paris today, right? <laughs> such a love, such a love city. Paris. Keith, you got to come to um, East London. Just come to East London. You'll be happy here. <laughs> I've, I've I've been to London quite a bit over the years, uh, it, and it's a fantastic city, by the way. It, it, it is a lot of fun in London. Um, but with, for example, but with with that nat gas trade that was settled in CNY, the value of the contract I think was like six hundred thousand dollars. Like it, it, it's minimal. And I think you can help me with this, Rich. The total value of annual energy products traded, is it 1 trillion or 3 trillion? I know it's oh, a I one it's, or a three. It's, it's probably closer to 4% at global GDP. So okay. uh, probably three or 4 trillion. Yeah. So it, it, it's pretty big. So, it, you know, it, they, they were able to do it, but in terms of the size, everything, this is, it's a nothing burger, as they would say. Those people who are claiming, hey, this is the beginning of the end, end is nigh, then you, you need a first step. Absolutely. So I can see the reason why they'd be pretty excited about this. A lot of the people that are promoting this story, um, they're selling you a business which makes money on you following them and selling a product that you're going to buy and, and all that stuff. But to believe that the world is shutting itself off the US dollar system, and it's happening right now. Uh, it, it, again, it's it's not the case. It, it's the U.S. is the last one to break, and the reason for that is because, unlike any other currency in the world, there, there's a significant amount of money that has been borrowed in U.S. dollars that takes place outside of the U.S. and it doesn't even involve any U.S. players involved with it. So the so for example, an offshore bank in 
say Thailand. If Thailand is trading with India, you know, they're they're trading whatever back and forth. The trade settles in, in dollars. The bank needs, they create dollars and, and stuff like that. It's not even touching the US. That doesn't happen with Canadian dollars. It doesn't happen with euro currency or yen or, or anything else. So they, they can't <laughs> break this system. If everybody wants it broken, by the way, it's not as if to say, hey, you know, you're trying to defend this system and you know you won't let it happen. If, if they could have created a new system 10 years ago, they would have done it. Right. That, that's that's a fact as well. But they, they're just not able to do it. And the only way a new system comes along first, and this is the most important part of, of this story, is that the bond the US dollar bond market breaks first. And it's a difference if holding a, a bond. So if you own a T bill. And I think I told this story before. Say you're out for dinner at night or you have your shawarma, which Rich which likes to have, and you try to pay for it with a T-bill, you know, they'll laugh at you. That, that's not U.S. dollars. You know, you if you're holding a U.S. dollar security and you want dollars, you have to sell it first then to get the dollars. And so the, so the way for the dollar system to break, it means the debt system breaks first. And it, it, it means that the world outside of the U.S., implodes at the same time. So I, I don't know how easy it's going to be to have this fixed, but uh, you know, maybe you're at peak you know, euphoria right now and hey, the world is, the US dollar is doomed and everything. And uh, I don't buy it at all. And I'm actually positioned for the opposite side of it. That's how strongly I feel about it. Rich is chomping at the bit. Yes. <laughs> okay. I've got four reasons. Keith loves it when I count things down. One is I think um, jurisdictions matter, league laws matter, and your and your regulatory framework matters. And you can like it or lump it, but the US is one of the tops in all of those things. The US is not corrupt. Now I'm going to get loads of blowback. Yes, I understand that in some ways US is very corrupt. What I mean to say is that if you are a bond issuer, you are going to do it under New York law, whether or not you are in New York or in, there's loads of, for example, London. London has plenty of lawyers who live and work in the UK and they their entire world is New York law. And they issue bonds on behalf of the Singapore Investment Bank building a sewer in Bangladesh and they're raising money. And that that it bond issuance will be issued in New York law. And that is where the arbitrators live. Uh, I'm making this example, it's a hypothetical example, but I, I promise you this is true. Um, it's it's where the, the bankers live, it's where the bond money, it's where all the arbitration, it's where the disputes will happen because those that jurisdiction matters and that regulatory framework matters and they trust the arbitrators, e.g. the judges, to properly execute when things get messy and things always get messy in finance. That's the first thing. And, and that first thing matters because it's trusted. That's what investors trust. That's what investors know more so than they would, let's say, China, for example. That's the second thing. You need an alternative. So there's always this thing called TINA. There is no other alternative. And the, the reality is, is what you can always, I think, until Bernie Sanders becomes the American president, America will, to a fault, protect capital owners and the owners of equity and money long before they care about anything else. And I think that that's really, really important. Whereas other countries like China, for example, it's not at all clear that their uh, polit political establishment or the judiciary or what have you will do that. The second thing is, I think, is just like quantum. So, for example, reserves, there's all this talk about how reserves are falling. 
So reserves, for, uh, but this is just a, a technical mistake that people who don't look at the data always make. I will share this chart. Now, global foreign current foreign exchange reserves in the United States are 54% of total. In 2000, uh, in, in, sorry, 1999, when the series started, it was 55. Now, the, the number that you will always hear is that it's fallen from 70% to 58 or whatever, and it's and the, the line looks, but that doesn't include what's known as an unallocated portion. And that's because Asian countries, when they're building up their export market, they hoovered up loads and loads of US dollars as they had massive current account surpluses. And for a long time, they did not write to the IMF what the currency was. So it was sort of so-called unallocated. It was just like you know, mystery currency. Turns out in, in 2014, there was this thing called the SSID. And in order for China to be more incorporated the IMF, they passed this legislation that they had to lock down what currency was what. And lo and behold, all that currency so happened to be US dollars. So when you look at the chart, it looks like it's going down, but the chart that I'll share on our Looney Hour Substack shows clearly what has happened and why. That's the third reason. And the fourth thing that I, I think is important to note is to give everybody sort of a history lesson. And the history lesson quickly, sorry, I know guys I'm going on, but it's quickly, is the history of different global reserve currencies since 1450. So Portugal, 80 years, 1450 to 1530. Spain, 110 years. Then you'll Netherlands, then was for 80 years. Then France for 90 years. France's uh, uh, currency hegemony ended in 1815. Should not be a coincidence. Then Britain, 1815 to 1920, if you'll notice those years. And then after 19, after World War I, it became the US. So what are all of, why, why do I bring that up? Why is that so important? Two things. One, the foreign reserve currency is not, it's not a coincidence that the leading empire at the time is directly related to that foreign currency. Might equals right. And if you have the largest navy army, or mostly it was navy, but it, you know, mostly it was land army, then it became navy, then France was land army again, and then Britain had the biggest navy. But basically, if you are the leading most important empire, you determine effectively what the reserve currency is. And right now, like it or lump it, the US is the most important empire in the world. Now, this idea that China will then take over as the reserve currency of the world, possible, we might have a war, fine. But that's what you need some kind of important schism to break that lock and you need a viable alternative that when that lock is finally broken to pivot to and so this idea that it's you know tucker carlson and his infinite wisdom thing is gonna happen next weekend it's like sure but there's loads of really key hurdles that you that need to happen before the world moves away from the u.s dollar there's my piece on the u.s dollar and sorry i'm sorry i went on a little long but it's important that people sort of get that context no, I think it's a really valuable, uh, you know, discussion because like I said, I think it's, you know, people read, read headlines, freak out, and then, you know, you know, you don't want people making rash decisions with their investment dollars, right? I mean, that's the whole point of the show is to have these kind of conversations and, and try to, you know, at least steer people, I think, in the right direction, cut through the noise. Well, there's one last thing that I want to add. I know Keith's jumping on, sorry, but which is like, a, somebody wrote to us and said, you know, what do you think about this? You know, and I was like, well, if 
if your daughter, if you, if you, if you had lots of money, would you put it in China? And their answer to me was no. And I know that that's a sort of a straw man argument. My point is neither would billionaires from Saudi and neither would Chinese people who are desperate to get their money in Vancouver. So if, if the, if not only are the richest people in the world outside the U S willing to deposit their money there and the people who live there trying to get their money out, why would some random country do it? You know what I mean? There's like, Sort of an important logical step that needs to be jumped well, over. Almost so like I, I think, like just like as a quick clean example, is like, you know, I, I think there was a lot of encouragement towards you know Chinese equities, uh, you know, even like a couple of years ago, and then you know think about all the the capital that was invested in some of these Chinese tech companies that were suddenly. Uh, essentially dismembered, you know, Jack Ma goes missing for a couple months. Like, it doesn't really give you a whole lot of confidence to be placing a lot of capital in that country. They found him, by the way. <laughs> they found him. He's good. He's been muzzled, but he's good. He he was eating the decadent chocolate chunk cookies in the corner. <laughs> <He> overdosed. <laughs> So, Rich, I just heard one point from you. Then, did you list the oh, other three come as well? On. I, I how did many, good. How many it was points? quick. <laughs> I know you. You were good, uh, but you know, I mean, it, it's a complicated conversation. But the the simple part of it is, I guess, from our perspective, um, U.S. dollar dominance it it will end at some point. Point number two, for it to end, there has to be a, a massive global crisis in, in the bond world, in, in the debt world. That has to happen. And when that has happened, that when the, that's when the demand for U.S. dollars is actually increasing, right? That, that, because everyone will need U.S. dollars to cover their debt that they have to pay back. And so, so, so you have to go through that. And then the point number three, right? I'm catching up to Rich now. Two more. Um if, if for someone to believe that, say, the Chinese will have the next reserve currency, the, the only way that can work in the current structure that the world has only ever known, it means you need to have a very deep and liquid bond market. So so Steve was just touching on, on this as well. Um, so for the, the Chinese to develop a, a bond market that foreign investors would want to invest in, um, I mean, they're, they're they're a little tiny bit away on the whole confidence scale to attract that kind of capital. But you also have to have an open capital account for your country. So as, as oh, both you, you beat me to it. Like money needs to be able to go in and out freely and not lose it as value and, and stuff like that. So that's why the U.S. Treasury market, it, it's unbelievable because you could buy, a, I, like I could buy $100 billion worth of a T-bill Right now, as we're chatting, and then when the call is over, I could sell it, and it'll be likely for the exact same price I did the trade in. Uh, you can't do that in any other market in the world. And then point number four. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. I won't do that again. <laughs> point number four. Um, you know, the, the, this next phase that we move to, it, it, it's likely not going to be one country's currency that, that's dominating. It could, it could be something different. And that's when the whole conversation about you know central bank digital currencies will come into play. Maybe there is no dominant currency in in the world. Who knows? But you know, central banks are well aware of this. They know these conversations are happening. They're trying to figure it out. And I'm not quite sure if one of you guys said point number five. Now my head are rich, right? You had four. I'm at five. Uh, let, let's not forget. I mean, the old the the deal that the Americans struck with the world was that uh, 
you know, you use our currency, we'll allow you to borrow in our currency and stuff like that. But you have to trade with us and in exchange for doing that, we have the world's biggest army and navy, and then we will protect your country when, when trade is flowing through. Um, so you sort of got to work through that process as well. But you know, the fuse has been lit and I, I don't think it's a short fuse. So anyone running out buying you know, crypto or trying to buy CNY or rubles right now, you, you may not have a, a pleasant experience relative to dollars coming up. It is interesting, uh, just on like the, the the Chinese and the real estate stuff, like, because they're citizens, I guess, legally or technically, they can only get $50,000 out per year. Um, and you'll remember back in, you know, 2015, 16, if you were here in Vancouver, or if you're in the other global real estate market, think of San Francisco, Seattle, New York, et cetera, all that Chinese money gushed out of the country. Um, and it was interesting. I was chatting with, uh, uh some, uh, financial crime lawyers and stuff here in, in Vancouver. And like, they, it's interesting. They were saying like, yeah, people would basically round up buses of people and, and they would all pull out $50,000 at a time. And then they would essentially, um, move it out of the country and it, it pushed up our housing prices. So the fact that, and now we know that, um, you know, since then, Yes, we've got foreign buyer taxes and foreign buyer bans, but that money has never really returned at scale because China basically tightened down the uh, the clamps, so to speak, the spigots in terms of money flowing out. So, um, you know, Keith, to your point, you have to open capital account, right? That That's the key thing, though. We've talked about this before, which is the impossible trinity, which is is a good pickup line, by the way. And it's the fact that the, you ha you can only choose. Rich is one for 15 on that line so far. <laughs> one. One night of success. Wait, has it actually succeeded? No, I think I'm 0 for 15. But anyways, like, you know, you have to pick two of the following three things, which is free capital flow, a fixed exchange rate, or sovereign uh, monetary policy. And you can only pick two. You can't have three. And China's not willing to let their uh, capital flow freely because, you know, capital, free flow of capital is liberty. And, you know, we, we, you can draw your own conclusions on that. But that, that's really sort of an important point, Steve. Go Speaking ahead, of, Keith. Make so, fun so what, of what, Rich, some more. <laughs> so, what, <laughs> uh, so what Rich means by that, everyone, if, if you open your capital account, it means money can flow in or out freely, which you now know. And I don't think you said it directly. It was implied. Oh, but sorry. if, if yeah. the Chinese went to that, uh, if they had an open capital account, it is believed and expected, and it, it's 100% true, capital would just gush out of the country. And so that means they're selling their, their CNY or RMB to the central bank, and their central bank has to give them US dollars for them to leave. And so, that, so the, the Chinese currency would you know, suffer a, a massive devaluation. And they're struggling with, with that right now. And, uh, you know, I, I sent out a tweet a few days ago. I, I meant to the it's serious with it, but a, a bit of zest, uh, a jest as well. But whenever, whenever there has to be a, a serious monetary or financial adjustment in the world, policymakers will do it over a bank long weekend. I mean, that, that's it, unless they're forced to do it on Tuesday afternoon. They, they, they pretend they would prefer to wait for the weekend, 
if there's a bank holiday on it, that gives them an extra 24 hours to do it. So one thing that we would often do over the years, if, if there was stress somewhere, you look around at the at your calendar, when is the next big holiday weekend coming up? So this weekend is Easter weekend. So, you know, Friday is a holiday in Canada, the U.S. Uh, in Europe, I think it's Friday and Monday, you know, because you guys really like not to go to work, Rich. Is that right? <laughs> I'll be here tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of writes itself after a while, doesn't it? Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but if and you know, and and I've been looking, I've been you know focused on China and Hong Kong you now for a while, and uh, so the the Hong Kong currency has been trading at the top end of its band for ten days straight. That's that's where it is. Um, uh, so there's 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 billions of dollars leaking out to the system. Kyle Bass covers this quite a bit. We should get Kyle to come on. Actually, the top uh, end is uh, cheaper and lower is more expensive, right? Just so people we're get, understand, we're getting Kyle on, yeah. right? Yeah, I, I know Kyle. I'll, I'll get Kyle to come on uh, as soon. He should talk about it. Um, but it, it's one of these situations where they're so so China. They're they're trying to get the money out. A lot of them are able to use Hong Kong as the conduit, which actually flows to HSBC. Like everything is linked together here. And, uh, but it's something to keep an eye on. And hey, it's a long weekend. We're doing this Thursday. Listen to this on Friday, usually, right? And uh, maybe it's this weekend, or then you go to the next month, looking at May and June. But it is something, though, that policymakers uh, have a serious look at the calendar. Okay, what, when is our break? When can we do something? So it's going to be a wild weekend then. It could be. Or maybe He's it's going to be there drinking his Pinot. And what? Big news. You got some, you got some fancy <laughs> eating Pinos? my cookies, eating my cookies. You got some fancy uh, Pinot for the uh, special holidays here or what? Uh, everything is fancy in my house. Oh, yeah. <laughs> must be nice. That's why we never get the invite. That's yeah. right. Guy doesn't share. Hey, uh, Rich, I don't know if you uh, Tell me. were following the, uh, we've, we've chatted quite a bit on this podcast way back. This is actually, I think during the, the depths of the pandemic there, but we did quite a few segments talking about the, uh, the Dutch farmers. Oh yeah. So we had some, uh, we had a news story break today, uh, that the Dutch government is to face a no confidence vote after election loss. So Dutch prime minister, Mike, Mark Root's government faced a no-confidence vote on Wednesday over plans to cut nitrogen emissions on farms three weeks after being beaten in provincial elections by a farmer's protest party opposed to such cuts. So the uh, the, the farmers are pushing back. Well, it's just funny because I was actually doing some – since we had our original talk, um, I was looking at the, the data because that's what I like to do. And it's actually amazing what's available. So the World Bank publishes um, fertilizer per hectare of arable land use. That was a little big mouthful, but that. And they've done this for many, many, many countries over a really long time, I think since the 70s or whatever. And basically from the peak, um, the Netherlands have actually cut their fertilizer land usage by 70% which is actually amazing. So I was thinking, you know, when I was expect when I was looking at this number, when I was looking at this data, I was like, oh, I was expecting them, you know, to have some of the highest usages in Europe, in the world, what have you. And it's actually quite incredible that the opposite is true. So not only are the Dutch for, again, not making it, let's ignore the, the actual argument here for a second, but just the clear data is that they've actually cut their, their nitrogen, at, at most fertilizers, nitrogen, but their fertilizer use on their each arable 
a hectare of land by 70% from the peak. It is now below countries like Brazil. And you can guess who else is above there. I won't mention it. But you, uh, China is like rising, obviously, and, you know, half a dozen other countries. So it's actually quite incredible. So they're, you know, the charts, um, all these emerging markets are now using way, way more fertilizer per hectare. And the Dutch are now basically at an all-time low in the series, which is 70% below its peak. Also, you Canada, consider- roughly? Oh, I can't remember now. Sugar, I, I, I'll have to share the chart. But the... Um, Canada's Canada's relatively low. If you give me, if you bear with me, I can find it. But the other thing that's really important, I think, is the the size. So Brazil's higher than Netherlands, or let's just say, for argument's sake, the same. But Brazil's obviously much much bigger. So you can imagine the comparable use of fertilizer with those countries. Like Netherlands is a tiny little you know postage stamp of a country. So it's just, yeah. Once you start digging around, the data really makes you disappoint. It's just, it's all, it's just a giant virtue signal. It's such, it's such a shame. Anyway, there you go. That's my piece on Netherlands. But I, what I like though about about this story is that you know it's you know the, the farmers strike back. You know the empire is striking back. <laughs> no, it's farmer, not the empire. It, it's the rebels, not the empire. <laughs> I thought it was the empire strikes back. It's the second. Yeah, but movie, it's the rebels it? that are fighting the empire. The empire being the EU. Anyways, <laughs> I, I think yeah. We, we blew it. We Rich is on like point number nine by now, right? We, we've lost <laughs> count. Uh, but we talked before about how pendulums, you know, they, it, it goes back and forth and stuff like that. And, you know, the pendulum that we've been experiencing across a lot of, lot of our like social economic factors over the last five or six years, it, it's, I think it reached peak over the Swung last year. Swung so far one direction. Yeah, yeah. And I was starting to come back. So what was, what I love about this story is you know the you know the, the small group are standing up to the man, and whether they're oh, and by the way, so the, the non-confidence vote uh, roots uh, coalition. Notice in Europe is always a coalition. Like there's never one party with enough votes to have a majority. Yeah, because you know what happens when there's one party. <laughs> Bad things happen in Europe when there's one party in charge. <laughs> well, um, so, anyways, the. Um, they still have enough to hold tight unless somebody goes off script. Um, but we, you know, maybe we'll see that. It actually comes in line sort of somewhat related to this. I was chatting with a guy yesterday, the day before, and uh, he, he's based in the GTA area. And he's suspecting that we're going to have a federal election call very soon. And I said, why? And he said, well, he's starting to hear more and feel more and and see more and all that about he used like the i don't know much about it but the uh i guess it's ottawa windsor fast speed train they want to make he said those talks are coming up again he said that means hey it's an election talk you know to spend money and stuff like that and then he was saying for what he's hearing like within the liberal party like the support for trudeau is starting to decline and so maybe they need to make a move at, at this point so maybe he becomes the symbolic you know cutting off and then the new oh. leader will come in but uh anyway but it's Can't. increasing you're starting to see more conversations now politically about change coming up and change is not always good it's not always bad but you can't stop it again it's that pendulum that's swinging back and forth so we that's something for us to watch further here in canada 
Can't come soon enough with uh, Bill C11 uh, getting pushed through. The loony hours and get muzzled pretty soon here. So, uh, you know, let's hope that. Uh, Are we going to survive? Will we survive actually, or I, not? I, I, I don't actually know. think it's probably good for us because they're going to push Canadian content onto Can- Can- Canadians. So you could make the case that it's actually good for us, but it's still a bad bill. <laughs> Until they by the way, don't that's why Rich message. is sitting with 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 you know with with Alberta behind him to show that that's he's right. he's he's all in. On Canada. Wait, I have the I have the data here. So can I just wrap the give this out before we 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 part yeah, ways here? Wrap wrap it up. So um so the fertilizer consumption. So the way it, it's done, it's World Bank data. It's freely available. It's per it's kilograms per hectare of arable land. So China, unsurprisingly, is three hundred and eighty three kilograms per arable land. Um, and at the bottom of my little list is um, Canada with one hundred and thirty two. Netherlands with two seventy seven. So more than twice what Canada has. Brazil is three sixty five, and in and in the UK is somewhere in the middle. So both Brazil and China have higher, have way more fertilizer consumption than let's say Canada, the UK. Um, and the U.S. So U.S. is at the bottom here with 126. So it's just it's when you start sniffing around the data, you, a lot of these narratives they sort of fall apart, which is why I love sort of what I do. But it's just I'll hat, share the chart. Hat, hats off to the Canadian farmers. Yeah, who are at the low? They're low end. I mean, they're obviously not as low as like a country that's very very poor. But in the rich country world, they're actually quite quite conservative with their fertilizer use. There you go. Now you know. There you go. Boom. Here she was. Gone. <laughs> Gone. <laughs> That's a good place to wrap it up. Um, as always, appreciate your support. All we ask is that you leave a five-star review and uh, you know some positive comments. Share this with a friend or family member and continue to build the Looney Hour community. And we'll see you next week.